As I mentioned earlier, we're beginning a series in this book, and it will take us a good chunk of this year uh, to study and to hear what God says to us in His Word uh, in the book of, of Exodus. And I'm not going to do a lot of way by way of introduction. There will be some introductory material uh, in the sermon this morning. And uh, so in just a moment, I'm going to uh, read the whole of chapter 1 for us uh, in the book of Exodus. Let me do just acknowledge that it is warm in here. Um, the design of this building and uh, the design of our current air conditioning uh, just can't keep up this time of year. Um, and especially when we have a full room. So I apologize and appreciate your patience with that. Uh, but we are glad to have you with us. Exodus chapter 1. Get this back off. Fine. There we go. Former music student. All right. You know how to deal with music stands. All right. Exodus chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter for us. Hear now the word of God. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Jacob was already in Egypt, or Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And, and let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help this morning. We need your help 
to enter this very old story. We need your help to trust that in this story you are speaking to us. You have a message for us for today. Uh, That in this story we have your words, and not only your words, but your power. And so we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit. That He would open our eyes and our ears, that He would open our hearts to receive this message and to be changed by it. And we pray that because you promised it to us, and we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, school has started, at least for some of you in the room, and for many more of you in this room, it will start tomorrow morning, or tomorrow afternoon perhaps. And I think one of the frustrating things about being a student is having to learn information that seems useless. Right? Having to study topics that seem irrelevant to your present and future life. So, Why do we have to read this book about some crazy guy chasing a white whale and learn more about 19th century whaling than I ever needed to know? And by the way, aren't we supposed to be saving the whales, not trying to kill them? (laughs) Seemingly irrelevant knowledge. Why do we need to learn that? Why do we need to read that? I don't know if your teachers will take that question seriously. But I want to take that question seriously this morning. Not with Moby Dick, but with the book of Exodus. Because as a church, we are going to spend much of the next year reading and talking about this book. And it is an old book. It was written a long time ago, and it has events and instructions that are strange to us, seem distant to our present lives perhaps irrelevant information. So why? Why should we spend so much time in this ancient text? That is the question for this morning. And I think as we come to the beginning of the book of Exodus, we can find the beginnings of an answer. Because this chapter sets the stage for the drama that will unfold in this book. And as it sets the stage, it reveals the reason for this drama. So I want us to come to this first chapter, and I want us to consider what we find here. And as we do that, we will see that we should listen to Exodus. Because it describes our situation, and it tells God's story. It describes our situation and it tells God's story. First of all, our situation. Exodus chapter 1 is like a battlefield map. My 8th grade history teacher was obsessed with the American Civil War. It was, the class was supposed to be all of American history, but 80% of the class was spent discussing major battles in the American Civil War. And we would often come into class... And on the board would be drawn detailed maps of these major battles with all of the Union positions and the Confederate positions clearly marked and their movements marked and how the battle unfolded. That's Exodus chapter 1. This chapter maps a conflict, a battle. And on the one side, 
there are babies. Lots of them. Verse 7 tells us that this family, the sons of Israel, they came to Egypt and they reproduced like rats. They multiplied. Do you hear the language of being fruitful, of multiplying, of filling the land? It is significant that that language in verse 7 and the language is repeated throughout this chapter, that language is borrowed from the creation story of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God makes the world. He makes humanity. Adam and Eve, He places them in the garden and He says to them, Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. So what's happening with all these babies is that God's design for human life in creation is being fulfilled. This is God's will for humanity. And understand that this idea of fruitfulness is not just about the physical production of babies. Uh, It is used throughout Scripture as an image of the fullness of human life. Life as it should be. It's used to talk about the growth of the church through conversion. It's used to talk about what the Christian life is when the Holy Spirit is at work. What does the Spirit do in us? Paul tells us in Galatians, it produces fruit. God makes us fruit who we were made to be. So that's one side of the battle. God's vision for the good life. But these babies are not unopposed. Pharaoh is on the other side of the battle and he sees these babies as subversive revolutionaries. Threats to his power and to his dominance. And so he moves to suppress the fertility of this group of people. And he attacks them in three stages. He first of all cruelly enslaves them. Then he attempts to covertly murder the male children through the Hebrew midwives. And he tells these midwives, verse 16 is a mistranslation, Uh, there's nothing about a birth stool, there's no such thing as a birth stool uh, in this culture. He says literally to these women, he says, look to the stones. And we are not the first culture in history uh, to have metaphors for body parts. He says, look to the stones. See what I'm saying? (laughs) And he attempts to overtly murder the male children of this people through these midwives. And of course, of course, they reject his plan. And so thirdly, his third stage of his attack, he orders an all-out genocidal attack on the Hebrew people. He tells his people, whenever you see a Hebrew male child, throw him in the Nile River. That's the battle lines. And notice it's not Pharaoh, a dictator, oppressing the civil rights of this people. It is Pharaoh opposing God's vision for life. It is Pharaoh opposing the Creator and His desire. Now why? Why does this conflict exist? Why does this violent, disturbing war happen? It is more than just political pragmatism. Remember, we're dealing with the language of creation here. And remember that the book of Genesis doesn't end with chapter 2, unfortunately. It continues into chapter 3. And what happens in Genesis chapter 3? 
Adam and Eve, who were designed for God's vision for life, they reject Him. They listen to another voice. And as a result, opposition to God and His design become a part of human nature and human culture. You see, Pharaoh and his actions and the actions of his empire, they are organized, institutionalized sin. This is the seed of the sin in Genesis chapter 3 coming to flower in this leader and in his empire as they oppose God's vision for the good life. And because of that connection, we can say that the conflict that we find in Exodus chapter 1 is not just a conflict that happened back then. It is a conflict that happens now. Exodus describes our situation. Exodus describes the tragic impact of the rejection of God the violent implications of sin. This book describes our world. Laura Ingalls Wilder, of course famous author of Little House on the Prairie and the series of books that followed from that novel, she also, in addition to the novel, she also wrote an autobiography. And until recently, the autobiography was unpublished. And... This book tells a very different story than the Little House on the Prairie books. Wilder's autobiography talks about the experience of domestic abuse, of substance abuse, marital infidelity, of danger that doesn't end with everyone being okay. She does not paint the idyllic, adventurous frontier life of a novel. She tells the story of the real world. As Exodus describes our situation, we don't get the idealized, novelized version. We get the painfully honest memoir. That we live in a world that has been tragically ruined by sin. We live in a world where because of that impact, there is suffering and pain and loss, even for God's people. And we need that honesty. We, as difficult and painful as it is, we need that shot of truth. Because sometimes, especially as people of faith, we think that life should be a Thomas Kincaid painting. You know those paintings where there's, a, there's like a cabin in the woods and everything's soft and warm and safe and nice? We think that should be life. We think that is life with Jesus, but it is not. That is not the world that we live in. Maybe you've seen the internet memes with those paintings where someone will, will put like a T-Rex crashing through the woods or, or the Death Star from Star Wars hanging in the sky. That's the world we live in. We live in a world of Mosul, Iraq, and Monrovia, Liberia, 
in Ferguson, Missouri. We live in a world of self-destructive addictions, of harmful family patterns. We live in a world of cancer, of loss and pain, even for those of us who are people of faith. That is the world we live in, and that is the situation that Exodus describes. And what it does for us is it opens a space for lament. The Bible does not pretend about suffering. The Bible teaches us to respond to this world with longing, with sadness, with a desire for it to be better. It teaches us to mourn and to grieve. It teaches us to long for more even when we experience less. That's why we need the book of Exodus. Because it tells us the truth. And it helps us respond to that truth. But we can't stop there. If we stopped there, we would end in cynicism. We would just shrug our shoulders and say, eh, that's the way the world is. But that is not what Exodus does. Exodus is not the story of cynicism. It is a story of change. It is a story of transformation. It is not only a book of honesty. It is a book of hope. Because Exodus not only describes our situation, but secondly, Exodus tells God's story. It tells God's story. Chapter 1 of Exodus, it's a dark, it's a dark picture, isn't it? But the way the story is told in this chapter has a kind of humor to it. Because this most powerful man in the most advanced civilization of the time cannot stop the babies. Right? They come wave after wave after wave. He cannot stop the babies. He, he enslaves the people and what happens? Multiply. More babies. He, he tries to enlist the midwives. What happens? More babies. Not only for the people, but for the midwives who would have been barren women. That's why they had the job of midwife is because they were barren. So God gives not only the Hebrew people babies, but now these Hebrew midwives, they get babies as well. And then he goes all out genocidal attempt to suppress this people. And we didn't read it, but what happens in response to that? Chapter 2 not just more babies, but one baby in particular. His name is Moses, the man who will lead the people of Israel out of slavery and will in turn not only defeat the army of Egypt, but absolutely annihilate the army of Egypt, the most powerful army in the world at that time. Pharaoh is losing. And he's not only losing, he's being embarrassed. Because he is losing to weak uncivilized slaves. And not only slaves, he's losing to women. Five women in, chapter, in chapters 1 and 2 oppose Pharaoh's plans. Five women. And in a very patriarchal society, that was not helping his street cred. He is not only being defeated, he's being embarrassed. Why? Why does Pharaoh lose so spectacularly in this chapter and in the coming chapters? Well, the answer to that question of why Pharaoh loses is in how the book of Exodus begins. You see, this book begins with one Hebrew letter. It's called a vav. 
one Hebrew letter, and that Hebrew letter, when it's attached to a word or attached to a paragraph, it pretty much means and. So it's untranslated in most of our Bibles, but the first verse should go, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. Why is that important? Because what that little Hebrew letter says is Exodus is not a standalone story. It is a continuation of a saga that has already been happening in the book of Genesis. Exodus continues the story of Genesis. And what is that story about? Well, what follows that single Hebrew letter? A list of names, right? Which is strange. Because with all the high drama of this chapter, why do we begin with a boring list of names? Well, because the drama is about a family. It's about the family of Abraham. And from the book of Genesis... What do we know about the family of Abraham? Well, God has chosen them. He has made promises to them. He's made a covenant with them. And a covenant is like a marriage, only deeper and stronger. God has married the family of Abraham. And He said to them, I am yours and you are mine. And what's the result of God owning the family of Abraham, choosing the family of Abraham. Well, he says to Abraham, the result of you belonging to me is you will be fruitful. You will multiply. You will become a great nation. You will have descendants more than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Lots of babies. Familiar language, right? What God is doing is He is saying, through the family of Abraham, I am committed to recovering the life lost by the family of Adam. The family of Abraham is God's method of rescuing the family of Adam. And He had promised to them, I will bring new life into the world through you. I am committed to that. So the reason Pharaoh loses, so embarrassingly, is that he's not just opposing God's will. He is opposing God's covenant promises. The story of Exodus is the story of God's unstoppable commitment to bring new life through His people, through the family of Abraham. That is God's story. That's the story that, God, that Exodus tells to us. But why do we need it? Why does that matter? What is our connection to that story? Well, this list of names at the opening of Exodus chapter 1, this list grows. It grows throughout the Old Testament. It gets longer. And it grows into the New Testament so that when you open your New Testament, you open to the Gospel of Matthew. And what is at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew? A list of names. And it includes the names that are on this list, but it's a bigger list. And where does that list end? 
What's the last name on the list? Jesus. Jesus is the goal of this genealogy, this list of names. And He is the goal of this list of names because although there are important events in the book of Exodus, Jesus is the climax of the story of God's commitment to bring life into the world through His people. Jesus is God's ultimate and final way of keeping His promise to recover the life that was lost in Adam. Jesus, through His death, His resurrection, His continuing ministry and his, through His church and His return, He fulfills and finishes the story that we read about in the book of Exodus that continues the story of the book of Genesis. And if we believe in Him, if we belong to Him, if we are in Him by faith, the New Testament tells us from Galatians chapter 3 and other places, it says, if you are in Jesus, you are a son or you are a daughter of Abraham. You see the implication? Exodus, if you belong to Jesus, this is your family story. This is your heritage. The story of God's unstoppable commitment to bring life in and through His people, that's your genealogy. That's your heritage. And when that is our heritage, it changes everything. In the spring, I traveled to Lakeland, Florida for a family funeral. Uh, my dad's mom, my grandmother, died, and we had uh, the funeral for her. And, of course, in these types of gatherings, it is a time for family stories. And I heard a lot of family stories during that time, stories about my grandpa, grandmother, some of them funny, some of them touching. Uh, but on the night before the funeral, I sat with my dad and my granddad and a few of my siblings and a few of my cousins, and my granddad began to tell the stories of how he and my grandmother grew up the homes in which they were raised. And these stories were not warm, funny, and touching. Because they both grew up in homes that were shattered by alcoholism, by violence, and by what would be labeled today mental illness. And I sat back and I saw a stunning contrast. I saw the difference between my grandfather's and my grandmother's home life and my dad's home life. The home that my grandmother and grandfather created. And although it certainly was not perfect, it was still a place of love and nourishment and stability. <clears throat> Utterly different from how my grandfather and grandmother had grown up. Why? Why the difference? Because they met Jesus. And He gave them new family stories. He gave them a new heritage that changed everything. Because if we have this new heritage for Jesus, from Jesus, if the stories of Exodus are our family stories, 
than labels like addict, abused or abuser, sinner, failure. Those labels are gone. Now you belong to the label. You are a son or a daughter of the promise. You belong to God's commitment to bring new life into the world, to recover what was lost by the sin of Adam and Eve. You belong to that. And if you in Jesus have that new heritage, then you can live a life like Shifra and Pua. These midwives, right, in the face of overwhelming evil, they worshipped and they feared a greater power. And they, with courage, served God's vision for life rather than death. You see, as we come to the book of Exodus in the name of Jesus, knowing it as our family stories, as our heritage, then we learn to live with hope in the middle of a great conflict. And we have that hope because we belong to the family that was created by the unstoppable commitment of God to bring new life into the world. I don't know if your teachers will or how they will respond to the question, why should we read this? But I want to invite you with me to the book of Exodus over the next month. And I want to invite you to this book, not just because it is a piece of great literature, although it is. I want to invite you to this book, not because it is culturally important. I want to invite you to this book, because in a world where it seems like death is winning, these words, these words are the power of God for new life. Let's pray.